Well, today we come to Genesis chapter 25. So you can please go ahead and open your Bibles up there. Genesis chapter 25. Last year, uh, last week, we studied where Isaac had received his bride. He received his wife, Rebecca. And today we move on and we're going to talk a, a little bit more about Abraham here again. And starting in verse 1 of Genesis chapter 25, it says, Abraham again took a wife and her name was Keturah. Now we also know, we studied a couple weeks ago that Sarah had passed away, his wife, and she was buried as well. But we'll pause right here because we're not told this here in Genesis, but in the book of 1 Chronicles chapter 1 and verse 32, we are told that this woman here, Keturah, was a concubine of Abraham's. We're not told it in Genesis, but again, if you study the whole counsel of the word of God and you read through it, you'll, you find you can fill in a lot of things in different places. And Keturah was a concubine. Now, the definition, the definition of the word concubine is a, a woman in a polygamous society who lives with a man but has a lower status than the man's wife. And there's something very important that we need to keep in mind as we read through the Bible. And that is that just because it's written in the Bible does not mean that God necessarily approves of it. For example, we'll, we'll later read of a woman who hammers a tent stake through a man's head, right? Does God approve of that? We'll later get into the New Testament and we'll see where Peter actually denies Jesus three times. Does God approve that? No, we know, of course not, he does. But the Bible is historically factual. It's real. It doesn't try to hide the warts of people. It doesn't try to hide the reality of people's lives. And God in his word lets us see the truth. He lets us see the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Okay. So you see, Abraham indeed was a good man. As we've studied through, we've seen he was a good man in regards to the fact that he stayed the course of faith. Okay. But as we've read of his life in the past several weeks, we've seen that by no means was he a perfect man. Right? That would put him on a level with Jesus. And Jesus is above all and was the only perfect man to ever walk the earth. So Abraham had a concubine. And we know from God's point of view that a, that a man was to have one wife because that's the way that God created it in the garden. God didn't create Adam and Eve and Ethel and Ezra. And, you know, God created Adam and Eve, right? And with Abraham, Sarah was the wife that God recognized as his wife, his one and only wife. She was the one that God had for him in his lifetime. And, you know, she will be the one to whom next we'll see he will be buried next to her. But again, the Bible is historically factual, so it doesn't hide anything. It tells us everything. And from Abraham would come other children other than just Isaac, with whom he had with Sarah, right? And in verse 2, 3, and 4 here, we get a listing of who these children are. And I'm going to skip those names today because I'm not going to go deep into those names, but we'll jump down to verse 5. These are the children, but listed in 2, 3, and 4 there are the other children that Abraham had. 
And Abraham, though, verse 5 says, though, that Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. So you see, even though Abraham had all these children and this concubine, and of course we know the, the relationship that he had with Hagar, the Egyptian woman with whom he had Ishmael, right? But all of that, his, you know, with all of this history recorded in the Bible, there is one truth that God wants to make sure that we don't miss, and that is the story of the coming of the Messiah. And the Messiah would come through the line of Isaac, right? And the, the, the Messiah wouldn't come through all those names listed in verse 2, 3, and 4 there. It, it'll come through Isaac. He will come through Isaac. And all of the inheritance that Abraham would leave would go to Isaac, okay? So it's important as you study the Bible that really that God's getting from one point to the next point, what he's trying to teach us. And it's going to be from the beginning of creation to everything that we've been studying in the life of Noah and, and Abraham and Sarah and all that. But eventually it's gonna go all the way up to Jesus. And we're gonna follow that line as we study through the whole Bible, the line of the Messiah. And it's gonna all be about Jesus. So as you study the Bible, that's important to keep in mind as well, that we're going to follow a lineage here. So in verse 6 tells us, but Abraham gave gifts to the sons of the concubines, which Abraham had. And while he was still living, he sent them eastward away from Isaac, his son, to the country of the east. So in a small sense here, Abraham took care of all of the children of his concubines, but he also made sure that he sent them away from Isaac. In other words, uh, in a direction to, far from him to a different land, not to live near Isaac. Isaac was to live in the promised land. Why? Because he was the child of promise. He was the child that God had promised to Abraham and Sarah that they would have. Again, we saw where they didn't stay the course and they had the other child with Hagar and Ishmael and all, Ishmael was born. But this was the child of promise and he was going to live in the promised land. This is the land that God promised to the descendants of Abraham and Sarah specifically. So all the other children, Abraham said, go that way or go east, right? Go that way. Okay, so verse seven says, this is the sum of the years of Abraham's life, which he lived, 175 years. Then Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man full of years and was gathered to his people. So here we have come to read now of the death of Abraham. Again, not a perfect man, but a good man. And more importantly, he was a role model in the fact that he was a man of faith. He was a role model to us. And faith, we know, is what pleases God. We are told that in the book of Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6, it says, and without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must first believe that he exists and that he rewards those who diligently seek him. So God wants us to approach him by faith. That's how he calls us to live is by faith, okay? You see, it's by faith that a man or woman come to God today, but it's not an aimless faith, okay? It's not just faith in any old thing or faith in any old one. It's a specific faith. It's a faith 
in Jesus Christ, the Messiah, right? But this example of faith was established in Abraham. It started with Abraham. It wasn't a religion that God gave to Abraham in order that he might walk with God, that he might know God. He didn't give him a religion. It wasn't circumcision as we've studied about, and we'll talk more about that a little bit today. It wasn't the law, right? Abraham walked in obedient faith in God before any of those things were ever established, before circumcision ever came into play, before the law was ever there. Abraham was approved by God because of his faith. So it wasn't religion. Religion was never intended to be the way. God wanted to walk with man from the very beginning. In the Garden of Eden, God wanted a relationship with us, his creation. Okay? And man, because of sin, we were separated from that relationship. And now we'll spend the rest of the Bible getting to the point where we, how do we get back into a right relationship with God? How do we get there? And we'll follow the story all the way through to see the answer. And the answer is Jesus, okay? But it's established right now that faith is going to be the way. Faith is going to be the way. And we've seen that in Abraham, okay? And you know, before we move away from the story of Abraham, I know we've seen he's died here, but before we move away from the story of Abraham and the faith that he represented, I'd like for us to take a look at what's written in the New Testament in regards to Abraham's faith and what it represented. So mark this page somehow, put a marker there somehow, and let's turn to the book of Romans chapter four. It's in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, then Romans. If you get to 1 Corinthians, you went too far. But we're gonna look for Romans chapter four. Again, we're going to talk about the fact that God was establishing a relationship with him based upon faith, okay? Not upon a religion or anything like that, but based upon faith. That's what it was going to be ultimately all about. And in Romans chapter 4, starting in verse 1, it says, What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about but not before God. Okay, so pause right there for just a moment. This is the Apostle Paul here that wrote this letter to a group of believers in the city of Rome. And the Apostle Paul here in writing this letter to those believers is taking time to explain to them the fact that we are justified in the eyes of God. We are justified by faith. And that is a result of God's grace. And that's what the Apostle Paul is explaining here. And he's using now the story of the life of Abraham to explain this. And then in verse 3, he goes on to say, For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. It's really that simple. Abraham believed God, and that, the fact that he believed God, that was accounted for him as righteousness, right? And that's the main point that, that Paul is trying to make here. Faith alone leads us to a righteous standing before God. But there are people that think that their religion or their good works that they do are going to make them righteous 
in the eyes of God and grant them access to heaven. And Paul says here in verse four, he says, now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. So in other words, someone says, but I was a good person. I'm a good person. I, I served food at the shelter on Thanksgiving. I, I went to church on Christmas Eve. I, I deserve to go to heaven. I'm not a thief. I'm not a rapist. I'm not a murderer. Why won't I go to heaven, right? That's the sentiment that first four there expresses. The wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. In other words, a person says, I'm owed heaven. It's owed to me because I've earned it, I, because of what I don't do, or because of what I do do, right? But God says, no, it's, it's not about that. It's about grace. He gave this gift to the world, but we receive it through faith, and we'll talk about that a little more. But verse five then says, but to him who does not work, but believes on him, you see the capital H there, it might be capitalized in your Bible, but to him who does not work, but believes on him, that's Jesus, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. So do you see that? That's how we become righteous, by believing on Jesus, okay? Now, don't make the mistake, though, of thinking that good works are not something that's important, because there are plenty of other scriptures that show us the importance of work, of works, but Works are the evidence of our faith and not the means by which we are justified before God. Let me repeat that. Works are the evidence of our faith and not the means by which we are justified before God. Our works don't get us saved, but they are the evidence of the fact that we are saved. It's very important that we understand this. Neither your good works nor your lack thereof or your bad works, whatever it be, none of it makes you, will make you righteous before the Lord. Only believing on God makes you righteous before God. Only believing on him who justifies the ungodly, as we read there, and that is Jesus Christ. Starting in verse six here, Paul will begin to quote King David. And he says, just as David also describe the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Bless, blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. So as Paul quoted King David there, he's pointing out that it's by grace through faith that we are made righteous before God. By the grace of God, our lawless deeds are forgiven and our sins are covered. But this righteousness does not come as a result of what we do or do not do. That's what Paul is pointing out. It's not about your works, okay? Paul goes on in verse nine. Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. So Paul asks a question, then he answers the question. 
But circumcision was a big deal to the Jews. Circumcision was a work that to them symbolized some sort of purity to them, a cutting away of the flesh, a huge sacrifice that was important in order for one to be righteous before God. That's what they taught. But Paul is pleading with them here and telling them that the works of the flesh are not what makes you righteous before God. And Abraham was our example of that. And Paul uses him as an example here. He was an example of someone that just believed God by faith. And there was no religion, no works involved in it, right? His belief in God, his his faith was established, like I said earlier, before circumcision. And it was established before the law. Okay, now we know that that Abraham did indeed go on to be circumcised, right? And we've read about that in the past. In verse 11 of Romans 4, Paul says, And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of faith, which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. And the father of circumcision to those who are not only of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of the faith which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. So what's being said here is simply that Abraham is the father of all who believe in God. He is our example that we look back to to see that it is faith that pleases God. And he had that faith while he was uncircumcised. And then afterwards, he was circumcised as a sign or a seal of righteousness. But that righteousness came to him by faith and not by works. I use baptism as an example for that, right? Someone comes to Christ. They first must believe in their heart. They must turn and say, I'm, it's time in my life. I'm giving my life to Jesus Christ. And that is something that happens within a person. And, and all things begin to, their eyes become open to the things of God. But then they take another step. And that step that they take is the step of baptism. And that baptism represents the fact that says, yes, I am dead, but I've been risen in Christ. And they're buried in the water and they rise again, right? To say, yes, my sins have been washed away. And they're making that statement. That is a a seal, something that proclaims that says, yes, I've done this, you know? And, And look, even for us today, the good works that we do are a seal as well. They're they're a sign of the fact that we have been made righteous by faith. Because we don't come to Christ and we read the scripture that says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away and all things become new. So why would someone then come to Christ and continue to walk in the old ways? It doesn't work that way. So there's a sign, there's a seal, there's something that takes place. That shows, and that's what we do now on the outside. We begin to change. People begin to see something different about us. And they say, what is it? And we say, well, it's not me. It's Christ in me. It's what Jesus is doing in my life, what he has done in my life. But as we read all of those verses we just read, we see that Abraham was indeed the father of the Jewish nation, right? Or that nationality. But he is also the father of the Gentiles who will come to faith in God. So he's an example of both the circumcision and the uncircumcision. 
right? The Jew and the Gentile. And the Jew in Scripture represents circumcision, and the Gentile is represented in Scripture by uncircumcision. But what is it that saves all people? None of that matters, and that's what Paul is pointing out. It's faith. It's faith that saves us, okay? This is uh, further reiterated, starting in verse 13 here. It says, for the promise that he would be the heir, speaking of Abraham, right? For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. So he's just sealing this point up, right? It's about faith. It's not about the law. It's not about religion. But remember, as we saw back there in verse three, it says that Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him righteousness, right? Verse 14, for if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect. So he's saying you wipe out the whole promise. You wipe out everything if it's all about your religion and if it's all about your law and what you do. And that's a pretty powerful verse of scripture to think about right there. If your works, your religion, your good deeds justify you before God, then the promise of God is made of no effect. It'll have no effect in your life. Why is that? Simply because God has made one way for us to be righteous and one way only. And that is Jesus, okay? And coming to faith in Jesus. Now, I encourage you to read through more of Romans chapter four this week, but let's talk for a moment now about the object of our faith, who I keep mentioning Jesus, right? Because I mentioned earlier that our faith is not just an aimless faith. God didn't say faith in what, whatever you want works for me. All roads lead to heaven. God doesn't say that. Scripture does not show us that. All roads do not lead to heaven. Okay? The fact of the matter is, is there's one person and one person only in whom we are to trust. This is the way that God has provided. And again, we're following that story from Genesis through Revelation now. Okay? We're going to follow that story all the way up to that one person, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. The Messiah, the one that God had, has provided, the one and only way to heaven. Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He said, no one comes to the Father except through me. Acts chapter four, verse 12 says, there's no other name given under heaven whereby men can be saved. No other name. So all the religions out there, there's a whole bunch of them, but what do we stand upon? What do we believe to be true? Do do we believe that this is the word of God or is this just a book? Is this just a book written by men and some women? Or is this the word of God? And if it's the word of God, well, then it's the truth. And it says everything I'm saying to you this morning, that there is one way and one way only. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. But Jesus also went on to describe what faith in him really is. It's not merely an intellectual thing, right? It's not, an, not just a, 
is something that we, we take lightly, right? It's an inner prerogative of the soul. It's a conviction that says, my life is not my own. I've been bought with a price, the precious blood of Jesus. I belong to God, and with my whole life now, I will serve the Lord. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. It's absolute surrender. It's complete conviction. It's being sold out to him. That's what faith in Jesus really is. That's where God wants us to be. He wants us to come to a place where we die to ourselves. Galatians chapter 2 verse 20, I've been crucified with Christ. What does that mean? It means we're dead. I'm dead to me. Okay, I'm dead to me. I've been crucified with Christ. Yet nevertheless, it says, I live. But not I, it's Christ that lives in me. And that's a whole different story right there. It's I'm dead. It's not about me anymore. It's now about Jesus. And then it goes on to say, and the life that I now live in the flesh, this daily life that I live, how do I live it? It says, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So we die to ourselves. Christ comes in us. We walk through this life now by faith in Jesus Christ. Not a nameless faith, a faith that has a target, a faith in one person, Jesus Christ. So take the time to read the gospel of Matthew. Take the time to learn what Jesus says a disciple of his behaves like, behaves like right? It's not a one-time profession of faith. It's not a temporary belief. It's a lifelong commitment to live in a way that the Lord commands us to live. Your salvation is not a, a result of works, good or bad, but works are an evidence of your salvation through faith because faith without works is dead, we're told in Scripture, right? But first, we must come to Christ by faith and realize that Jesus paid it all, like the song says, all to him I owe. Sin has left a crimson stain. He has washed it white as snow. We come and we receive that gift and we receive Christ in us and we begin to then walk in the newness of life. And again, Abraham, all of this, I'm pointing back to Abraham. He was an example of that to, to you and me today. And as we turn back to Genesis chapter 25, Again, we've read that Abraham has now died. And then in verse 9, it goes on to say, And his sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah, which is before Mamre, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar the Hittite. The field which Abraham purchased from the sons of Heth, there Abraham was buried and Sarah his wife. So if you remember, we studied that a couple of weeks back, that that's where Abraham purchased the burial plot for his wife, Sarah. Well, he was buried there as well, next to Sarah. And the story will now switch focus. So we've come to the end of Abraham here. And the story will now switch focus and we'll, we'll look at Isaac. Okay, Verse 11 says, and it came to pass Pass after the death of Abraham that God blessed his son Isaac and Isaac dwelt at Behir Lahoi Roy. Okay, so verse 11 is an important verse for us to understand as well in that it is Isaac, not Ishmael, that God will bless. 
We see it written there. The line of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, will come from Isaac. That's why I'm you know, stressing that point to you. We're going to follow this one line of people, Isaac, and we're going to go on to Jacob, and we're going to keep going. We're going to follow this line, this whole group of people through the Old Testament and what God was doing in their lives, all to lead up to the Messiah. So the line of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, will come from Isaac. Okay, But verse, verse 12 through 18 will give us the, the genealogy, it says, of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar, the Egyptian, Sarah's maidservant, bore to Abraham. So we've seen it twice now, that even though that God said, you know, here, here's Isaac, and, and then Abraham had this concubine and had all these other children, he gave gifts to them, he took care of them, he didn't forget about them, right? But it was Isaac that's going to be the focal point. And now we see that we're going to see the genealogy here of Abraham's son, Ishmael. And uh, that will go verses um, 13 through 15, where we'll read all of those names there. But I want to skip down to verse 16. These were the sons of Ishmael, it says, and these were their names by their towns and their settlements, 12 princes according to their nations. Now, if you remember back in chapter 17 when we studied that, God promised Abraham that the sons of Ishmael would go on to be 12 princes. And there in verse 16 is the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. That's exactly what happened. And all of these sons came through Ishmael. And verse 17 continues and says, these were the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. And he breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. They dwelt from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt, as you go toward Assyria. He died in the presence of all his brethren. So there we see a finality put to the story of Ishmael in the Bible. But verse 19 goes on to speak now of the genealogy of Isaac. It says, this is the genealogy of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah as wife, the daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Syrian. And if you weren't here last week for all of that teaching, we talked about Re Rebecca, and we talked about Isaac taking her to be a wife. And you can find that teaching on our website at aloveoutreach.com if you're interested. But verse 21 says, Now Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his plea, and Rebecca, his wife, conceived. So what do we see there? In verse 21, what can we learn from it? Well, we see a man that takes time to pray for his wife, first of all, right? But as we read on, verse 22, but the children struggled together within her, and she said, if all is well, why am I like this? So she went to inquire of the Lord. Now, let's pause there and consider what Rebecca does when she's not feeling well. What does she do? She inquires of the Lord. In other words, she seeks God first, right? So Isaac was a praying man that prayed for his wife, and Rebecca was a praying woman that sought God in the circumstances of her life. 
And they're a pretty good example to us of a godly couple. Two people, one marriage, one focus, one God. Okay? The one focus on one God. And of course, God has a hand in this pregnancy in that he's the one that provided it. And he ultimately has a bigger plan because from this pregnancy will come Jacob, whom will also be in the line of the Messiah. So God answers Rebekah's prayer here in verse 23. And, and he says, two nations are in your womb. Two peoples shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. So here we see that Rebecca is told by God that she'll have twins. And each one of those twins will represent a nation, a people group. And even before they were born, while they were still in the womb, God had determined that it would be the older that would serve the younger. While they were still in the womb, God already stated this. This is the way it's going to be. The older will serve the younger. This was all a part of God's grand plan. God will choose only one of these children for whom the Messiah would come through, from whom the Messiah would come, right? Only one of these children would represent God's elect, the chosen people. The twin that would come out last will be the one that God chooses to bring forth the line of the Messiah. So mark this page again. And then we're going to turn back to the book of Romans where the Apostle Paul addresses this. Romans chapter 9. I should have had you keep a marker there last time, huh? Um, let's start reading down in verse 8. It says, so Romans 9, 8. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise. He said, at this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. So Paul here brings to our remembrance again the story of Abraham and Sarah and Isaac. But he's going to tell us more here in regards to Isaac, Rebekah, and Jacob. First of all, he points out that the promise was Isaac. He's the promised child, not Ishmael. It was Isaac because that would be the child that came from Abraham and Sarah together. But now Paul's going to go on and talk about Rebecca, right? And then and Jacob ultimately. Verse 10. And not only this, but when Rebecca also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that's who we're talking about, the Jacob and Esau, the twins that are in Rebecca's womb in Genesis, right? They not even having done any good or evil that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Now, Paul kind of says a mouthful here. 
So let's break it down. First, let, first let's jump back to verse 8. That is where we get our context from here. Paul says in verse 8, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. Now we know that Abraham had a son that was of the flesh, right? Abraham had a son with this Egyptian woman named Hagar. This child Ishmael was the result of Abraham and Sarah trying to make something happen in the flesh. Even though God had promised they were going to come up with their own way to do it. And they, they chose that route, right? In other words, God, God promised them something, but rather than continue on in the faith, they decided to make a fleshly decision and bring about a child by their own will. Again, I said, the Bible doesn't present to us perfect people, except for Jesus, okay? These are people that make mistakes in life. But that child that was born as a result of that relationship between Hagar and Abraham, Paul's saying that wasn't the, the child of promise. God at a later date caused for Sarah to become pregnant by Abraham and, con and they conceived Isaac. This was the child of promise. This is the child that Paul refers to there and says that this child was counted as the seed, but this child came as a result of the promise of the faith, right? Then in verse 10, Paul brings Rebecca, uh, brings up Rebecca and Isaac, right? Rebecca had twins in her womb. These twins, as God told her, we saw, represented two nations, but God didn't do things the way that man would do things. In man's ways, Esau, Esau should have been the one that had the birthright. It all should have went to him. If the, Messiah, if the Messiah was going to come, it should have come through the line of Esau. Remember, Isaac was the child of promise, right? He married Rebekah, and we will see when we get back into Genesis that Esau was the first one born. The birthright all went to him. But Paul is saying there in verse 11, that it wasn't about who did right or who did wrong. It had nothing to do with good and evil. It was simply the decision of God Almighty that the old, older would serve the younger. God made that choice. And this is what Paul is calling election here. Okay? It would be Jacob that would be the chosen child. And the people of Jacob, whose name will later be changed, Jacob's name will later be changed, we'll see, to Israel. They are God's chosen people. Chosen for what? Chosen to bring forth the Messiah. Chosen to solve the problem that happened all the way back in the Garden of Eden, where man was separated from God because of sin. There needed to be, there needed to be a way to solve that problem. And God was going to do it ultimately by God becoming flesh and dwelling among us, but he was going to have to come through a people. And those people were going to be the people of Israel, but he was also going to have to come through a bloodline. And that bloodline started way back with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and went, went on through, right? So these people, though, the Jews were the chosen as the elect people of God to whom the good news of salvation would go to them first. We, we read that. In the book of Acts, we'll see that the gospel went to the Jew first. We'll find, you find later when you get into Acts chapter 10 that the gospel for the first time went to a Gentile. 
to an Italian man into his home, Cornelius, right? And we also know that salvation, again, this is the point that we, we must keep in mind, that salvation comes through faith alone. Ephesians 2, 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith. That's how someone comes to salvation, through faith. God says again, like I mentioned earlier, here's a free gift. You don't deserve it. Would you like to receive it though? It's a free gift. Well, the way you receive it is through faith. Faith in Jesus, the Messiah. See, because today, you know, if I were to offer you a gift, there's something in my hand, there's something tangible that I give you and you take it and you can see it with your eyes. But we don't come to Christ like that. Jesus says, blessed are those who won't see but yet believe. We are the blessed ones because we come to him by faith and we receive, that's how we receive the salvation, through faith. It's a free gift. This is what Jesus did. Your sins are covered. It's all washed away. By faith, you come and receive it, right? And we happen to be studying in Genesis now, uh, you know, about the ancestors of Jesus, right? Of, of whom Jacob is one and Esau is not. Why did God choose Jacob instead of Esau? Because he is God. And that's why we don't question God. We simply serve God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul points that out here. That was God's choice. It's just the way it is. Okay? Let's turn back to Genesis chapter 24. And again, you can later go on and read Romans chapter 9 in more in depth if you'd like. Back in Genesis chapter 25, I'm sorry. Um, we will see here that Esau's heart will be hardened toward the fact of his birthright. Okay? He will care more about the temporary and Jacob will care more about his future. We're going to see that between Esau and Jacob. But let's read on. Verse 24, speaking of Rebekah, says, So when her days were fulfilled for her to give birth, indeed there were twins in her womb. So just like God told her, would be, indeed there was twins in her womb. Verse 25, and the first came out red. He was like a hairy garment all over. So they called his name Esau. So his skin was red and his body was hairy. So they called him Esau, which means hairy. Okay. Verse 26, afterward, his brother came out and his hand took hold of Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob, Isaac, was 60 years old when she bore them. Now, if you want to do the math, Isaac got married at 20, right, 40 years old, to Rebekah. He had this child at 60, so Rebekah was barren for 20 years without child. And they sought God in prayer, and God answered that prayer. Okay, so Jacob, though, he was not red, but his name means heel catcher. That is not a complimentary name to be called because it really takes on the meaning of a trickster or a rascal, right? And we'll see that come true in Jacob's life. Verse 27, so the boys grew and Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, but Jacob was a mild man dwelling in tents. 
So even though they were twins, they had two very different personalities. Esau was the outdoorsman, rugged, you know, hunting in the fields, right? Jacob was mild and dwelt in tents. He was a person that kept to himself. The word mild there is the Hebrew word tam, and it, it, may, it takes on the meaning of wholeness, okay? Jacob didn't need to be out and about. He was content within himself. He was mild in his nature. But keep in mind, he was a trickster. He was a rascal. He was a heel catcher, you know, as his name indicated. Verse 28, and Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. So the father loved Esau because of what he brought back, you know. But Rebekah loved Jacob, it says. So here we see parents that showed favoritism. Again, the Bible does not show us perfect people. Right? We see parents showing favoritism here. And we'll see that Jacob was not a perfect character either. But remember, their personalities didn't matter to God. God had already made this choice which child was going to be the child of promise while the two of them, um, Jacob and Esau, were still in the womb of Rebekah. Now in verse 29 here, we'll see Jacob's character shine forth but we'll also see the shallowness of Esau's character, right? It says here in verse 29, now Jacob cooked a stew and Esau came in from the field and he was weary. And Esau said to Jacob, please feed me with that same red stew for I am weary. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Okay, so his name at birth was Esau, but the word Edom means red. Now we know that Esau's skin was red at birth, but he actually receives the nickname as red as a result of desiring some of this red stew that Jacob had made. So they called him Edom. And Esau's descendants will now be called the Edomites as a result of his nickname. But again, Jacob is a heel catcher. He's a trickster, a rascal. You know that kind of kid that would come up behind you and like kick your heel when you're walking, that type of kid, you know, a trickster, a rascal, right? Those people are throughout all of history, right? Uh, the world's full of those kind of jokers. But Jacob has something up his sleeve here. That's why I said we're going to see his character come out. He's got something up his sleeve. But Jacob said in verse 31, sell me your birthright as of this day. So Esau wanted the stew. Jacob said, hmm, I think he, he had to plan this thing out. He's going to come in hungry. I'll ask him to sell me his birthright. And Esau said, look, I am about to die. So what is this birthright to me? And Jacob said, swear to me this day. So he swore to him and he sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and stew of lentils. Then he ate and drank, arose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. So as we see this situation here, what can we learn from it today? As we read that, what we just read about there. Well, we see Esau willing to, like I said earlier, give up the future for the here and now. He was saying, I don't care about that. I feel like I'm going to die. I'm so hungry. I'll do anything right now. I don't care about that. He's given up the future for the here and now. He was more interested in physical grat gratification than he was in his future well-being. 
And Satan would love for, for us to sacrifice our future for the things of this world. To take our eyes off of God and say, I'm living for the here and now. I'm going to eat, drink, and be merry. I'm going to do what I want to do. And I could care less about that. I could care less about what God has for me. I could care less about the future, right? And the question that I posed to myself as I was reading this and studying this, is there anything that I will sell eternity for? Is there anything that you will sell eternity for? Jesus said, what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world but lose his own soul? And what will a man give in exchange for his soul? In other words, the things that really matter, who you are internally. Are you willing to just sell it and give it up for the instant gratification of this world and what this world has to offer? Because there's nothing more important in this world than your eternity, your salvation. Temporal, physical gratification is not worth the sacrifice of eternity. And that's what kind of came to me as I was reading that little portion there at the end of this chapter. So again, we see a lot in scriptures. There's a lot to learn. And when when you read the New Testament, we see it says that the Old Testament, what was written of old was written for our learning, that we might learn from it, that we might grow from it, that we might see, that we might apply it to our lives today. And again, we know that we're following a story here. We're following the story of the line of the Messiah. And it's all going to be all about Jesus. And we know today we have an advantage that the people of the Old Testament didn't know. The people in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's day, they didn't know all that we know today. They didn't know that the Messiah came, that it was Jesus and who he was and all of that, right? But yet we do know today that many people still reject the Messiah, that many people still choose the world over God and his plan of salvation. But let's pray. Heavenly Father, Again, we thank you, Father God, for your word, that we can learn of you, that we can learn your will for our lives, Lord, and and the purpose for which you have us on this earth. As your word says, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those that love him. And Lord, I pray that we will not sacrifice those things that you have prepared for us, that we will not sacrifice them for the temporal, meaningless things that are just consumed and, and, and done with quickly, Lord, as we see Esau here taking a, a bowl of stew in replacement of his birthright. But God, I pray that as we continue on through this life, that you will increase our faith, that you will strengthen us in our innermost being, that we, we would desire to know more and more of your will for our lives. Lord, this is such a short time that we get together on Sundays. Now we face a whole week ahead of us, Lord, if you tarry. And Lord, I pray that each one of us will just continue to grow in you. But again, Lord God, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your love and your grace that you have offered to us. In Jesus' name, amen.